are listening to the Slash and Cast Podcast Network. Enjoy the show. <laughs> hey folks, Justin here. Just got a quick word before we dive into this chat with director Dwight Little, whom you may know from films such as Halloween 4, Mart for Death, and Murder at 1600. So I mentioned last week that my review of Tom Holland's new Fright Night comic will be posted to Rue Morgue, and uh, it's up now. It's available for your consumption if you'd like to check it out. And uh, also I'll be doing a Q&A with director Dan Merrick for Rue Morgue for the 23rd anniversary of The Blair Witch, so keep a lookout for that. Anyway, that's enough rambling. Let's get to the episode with Dwight. Nicholas joins me for this one, so here we go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Well, Dwight, how the hell are you doing this afternoon? Hey, Justin. Thanks for having me, man. So I guess to get us started here, take us back in time. You're a kid, you know. What sort of movies are you watching? What books are you reading? Are you into comics? What gets you ticking back in the day? What sort of helped cultivate your creativity? All right. Well, I was, you know, I hit that 70s American cinema renaissance where I was doing all the French Connection and Three Days of the Condor and The Exorcist and all, I call it all, all the Italians were hitting, hitting hard. Coppola, De Palma, Scorsese, they were all hitting it pretty hard. Then I had a, an art film streak in me. So I had some Bertolucci and some Truffaut salted in there, a little Spanish film. Carlos Sauda was a favorite of mine. And uh, so I had a little of that going on. I did like Hollywood movies, but I like that kind of niche of the what, I guess we call them the 70s movies, the conversation, that whole mix. They're just so great. So how did this love of and interest in films eventually blossom into your first opportunity in the film industry? So the quick answer is I'm a USC film school brat. So I did my four years there. I had made a short film that got a little attention. And then from there, it took me about three years of knocking around, doing uh, music videos, documentaries, whatever I could, really. And then there was an old-time B-movie producer named Sandy Howard, and you guys may have heard of him. <laughs> he sort of uh, was strapped for cash and needed uh, somebody really cheap to help him save a movie called Triumphs of a Man Called a Horse with Richard Harris. And he got my name out of the, out of the paper because there was a little article written about me. Anyway, I worked for Sandy, and then I did a good job for him doing some second unit and he said how would you like to do a little movie and I said I'd love to he said well get me a script I didn't have a script so I had to sit down and write a script and I'm not a writer 
but I had to do it. I had to do it fast. But I got him a script called KGB, The Secret War. And he got Sally Kellerman and Walter Gotell. And so I, I really came up when they were, they needed movies for video, for VHS. They had to have product no matter what. So, you know, he, he made, I don't know if you know Sandy Howard, but he made Vice Squad and Angel, a lot of kind of classic B movies. Gotcha, gotcha. He was, he helped me. His, his, his species doesn't exist anymore. You know, there was Roger Corman, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, Sam Arkoff. That's definitely a dying breed of filmmaker. Sandy Howard, that, that just isn't here anymore. Mm. Yeah, it looks like Sandy Howard made Circle of Iron. That's one of my favorite. Oh, I like your you're digging deep there. That's oh good. yeah, it's one of my favorite Carradine <laughs> films. Yeah, he made maybe forty movies. I don't know, maybe more. He's got a long list on here. Did you ever work with him again, or was that just sort of your start? I did, but never on anything that got made. We developed some stuff, but it never really got made. Sandy, unfortunately, got ill. And so he was never able to really complete what he was doing, but he made some pretty good B-movies. That's really cool that you have a relationship with one of those pioneers. Now, let me ask you, um, Dwight, I'm looking at your list here, and it looks like Halloween, The Return of Michael Myers, was one of your earlier projects. How did that come about? That's a fairly big franchise to jump into so early into your directing career. Well, right. I, I got that because I introduced to Mustafa Akkad, and he had found out I was had been working in India on that movie called Bloodstone with mm-hmm. Rice. And another real B-movie impresario named Nico Mastarakis. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. You should look him up. <laughs> you're gonna, you're, your mind is going to be blown when you look up Nico Mastarakis. But he was a real B-movie guy and gave me a movie in India. And then Mustafa heard I was shooting in India and he wanted to go make a movie there. So he was real interested in, in meeting with me and then we got talking and I, I mean, I can tell you the Halloween 4 story, but it, it takes a, just takes a minute. We've got plenty of time Hi, my friend the floor is yours well the thing of it was that they you know carpenter and i think it was deborah hill had done kind of an outline for it and um you know the halloween three they had strayed away from michael myers everybody kind of this is pretty common knowledge and um, mustafa wanted to get back to michael myers even though he was dead at the end of halloween two you know i don't think that carpenter and deborah hill really wanted to go down that road and so they had a little bit of a a split there. I went back to a writer friend of mine named Alan McElroy, who is still very active and working today. He and I came up with an idea for Halloween 4 and pitched it to uh, Mustafa. And, you know, he loved it, but it, it involved kind of resurrecting Michael Myers uh, 10 years after he had apparently been killed at the end of two. So that's what he wanted to do. And he had his own money, he had his own distribution. So I, I kind of was brought in on that in the hopes of bringing back Michael. That was the idea. I'm so glad you brought that up because I wanted to ask you about that specifically. Now, in the years since its release, Halloween 3 Season of the Witch has gained a cult-like following, but definitely at the time it was not received well, and you were tasked with the return of Michael Myers to the franchise. Now, there's got to be a lot of pressure that comes with that, and just a lot of conversations that were going on at the time with which approach to take and how to best to do it. Yeah, they gave me an outline, actually, which I read, and they said, well, do you want, how do you want to develop this? And I said, well, I don't want to develop it. I, I'm, not, I'm not interested in any of it. It was really, it was a bunch of teenagers just getting randomly killed having sex, and I was like, oh, well, this is not breaking new ground. We, we wanted to do, Alan and I wanted to do a, a Silence of the Lambs 
style thriller, you know, more of a like Donald Pleasance is on the hunt for an escaped convict. And he, you know, he has to track him down to Haddonfield. And I really was looking more, I didn't want to make a slasher film, although it is, but I was really looking more to make a, like a a cop thriller almost. Mm. Now, did John Carpenter have any involvement whatsoever with that project? He was not involved with for his music. Of course, we were able to get a score from Alan Howard, who was the who was the co-writer, you know, with John. So um, Mustafa did have the rights to the music, which is essential, as you know. Mm, right. So, so we were able to have the Halloween theme and the Halloween and, and working with Alan, who was the original composer. But uh, John was not involved. I think he was a little miffed with uh, Mustafa at that point. But of course, he's very involved now. They're making even more of them. He's back in. I've got to ask what it was like working with Donald Pleasance. I know that, that was one of his last roles. I believe Halloween 6 was actually his last on-screen role before his passing. So what are your memories of him on set? Uh, he was he was really fantastic till about, I don't know, about four in the afternoon. <laughs> Uh, and they, he, he would, two things would happen. He'd get tired. He was an older man by then. And then he started, uh, you know, he started to enjoy his cocktails a little bit early. Uh, I started to have to work the production board and say, look, you know, Donald's going to be good to about four and then let's just go on and do other things and, and not, not expect him. Uh, we had one scene at night, freezing cold out there and, it was a complicated scene where Donald Pleasant sees multiple Michael Myerses. It's like a Halloween gag. But um, he had his hat on. It was so cold. And we were so cold that the script supervisor and wardrobe and myself, no one noticed we did the entire scene and the coverage <coughs> with him with his hat on. And uh, we had to go back and re-shoot the whole thing because somebody finally said at the end of all this, hey, man, you got he's got his hat on. It was brutal. <laughs> he also, uh, he didn't really like the scar that we had on his face. He had been severely burned in two. So we had to have some trace of, of what had happened. But that being said, he was a complete pro, knew his lines, knew how to block a scene, knew how to take direction. He was no trouble. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned the continuity between the burn in Halloween 2 and the scar on the face in 4. And as fans, that's just cool to know that people like you, the directors of the future films, are at least thinking of these sort of things in some capacity. Because Halloween 4, like you say, obviously it's the fourth installment of a franchise. There are three other films, and you kind of want to carefully toe that line between bringing your own fresh ideas and take on the story while still maintaining that sense of familiarity to the fans i guess yeah it, it's tricky i did did really want to pay homage to halloween one because it was so beautifully done so i didn't want to get too fancy um i didn't want to make a music video i didn't want to trick it up i tried to tell the story in a very elegant way and a moody uh way i was very particular about the costume design the production design and it was also a midwestern town at halloween i'm from cleveland so i completely understood this world even though it was spring it was cold enough that we could fake autumn had to put down enormous numbers of leaves everywhere we went so we, we just had pas with huge trash bags of leaves and everywhere we went we were pouring dead leaves all over the place that's how we got autumn i was gonna say this is uh danielle harris's first film role and she's since become pretty well known in the in the horror community what was it like working with her did you have any hand in choosing her for the role yeah i i can take complete credit for that i had to go i couldn't find anybody here 
<laughs> and uh, I went to, because they were all commercial actresses at that age. And they were very, you know, they were used to kind of putting on a show to do commercials, being mm -hmm. kind of smiley. And, and uh, so I said to Mustafa, I said, I can't find her here. And he said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to go to New York and have a look over there. And he said, okay, which is shocking. But anyway, he sent me to New York. I looked for some Rachels out there in New York too. But she came in, Danielle came in about, she was about the fifth one that came in. And then she came in the room. I, I mean, I did read her, but I didn't. I knew when she walked in the door that that was her. And she was very precocious. She was, you know, cute, but smart. She had, she had these eyes, you know, these horror thriller eyes where they were kind of went wide and you, she just drew you in. So I, well, I didn't send a text, but how did we communicate then? I called. <laughs> <laughs> I made a phone call. And I said, look, I got her. I found her. We're going to send you a tape, but I've got, I just want you to know, I told the producer I've got her. And he didn't, he didn't question me at all. He said, good, just tell him we're going to make a deal and come back. It was so great. He, he was so lovely because he trusted me. And we, we had to go to New York to get her, but I'm sure glad we did. And she's gone on to do a lot, as you say. I saw her because, you know, that Universal had a maze for Halloween. They had a, they had a maze which was incredible out of Universal Studios and in Orlando too. So there was kind of an opening premiere of the maze, and I got to see her, and she looked great. She was actually pregnant. She's having you know she started a family. So when was that Halloween maze release for Disney World? It was before COVID. It was like two or three Halloweens ago. It was interesting because they recreate. You can go online and take a tour of the Halloween Four Maze at Universal because they recreated the diner and and Bucky getting fried and they they recreated this whole movie at Universal and the lines. Oh my God, the lines were around the block. It, I didn't realize there was as much interest in, in Halloween Four as there is. I mean, there's a few haters out there, but not many. Most people really, like, dig the movie. I think every project has to deal with that in some capacity, right? You can't please everybody. And specifically with Halloween 4, you know, and no disrespect to Tommy Lee Wallace, who uh, directed the third film. Like I said earlier, it's gained a cult like following since, but truth is it just was not received well when it came out. So here comes you guys with Halloween 4 and the return of Michael Myers. You guys were kind of set up for success. Yeah, I think people really enjoyed seeing him back. We did make one mistake, which the fans will not forgive us for, and I don't blame them, but it was another 3 o'clock in the morning thing where we had to get a shot of Michael throwing, I think it was a double for Donald Pleasant to a window and something happened with his mask the mask ripped or tore it was three in the morning we had to finish the day and we were like we don't have time to repair it what are we going to do and somebody I don't know if it was the prop guy somebody said you know there's another one on the truck there's another one on the stand so I said well go get the fucking mask just get it <laughs> <laughs> bring it out here so we're all exhausted so they brought the mask on we put it on his head and shot the shot because it was just really a second unit shot but oh my god because the mask doesn't match and the fans are just not having it and i get more i get more questions about what happened to his mask so the answer for all time is it was late and we fucked up and that's that's really intriguing i'll have to go go look at that you got to pull a george lucas on that one and go back in and cgi it now <laughs> years later so, you know that is not a bad idea I'll, i i think maybe it's probably worth it just to stop <laughs> dwight about the same time you did halloween you also directed an episode of freddy's nightmares so is that sort of how you 
cultivated that relationship with Robert England, which led to the Phantom of the Opera, which you also directed? Well, it's interesting because the answer really is no, because of all the episodes that were done, my particular episode of Freddy's Nightmare didn't have Robert in it. It was was like, I just had this standalone episode. And uh, they called me on that because Halloween Ford had come out and, and it had gotten some attention they called me and said would you do an episode and i said yeah i'd love to and then i got the script and it wasn't really a freddy script it was kind of odd but then then a few years later or not much longer uh you know i got involved with phantom and had a long creative experience with robert then with halloween were you just not interested in continuing with the franchise was it ever discussed to maybe bring you back for future sequels they bugged me about it over and over and over again they kept asking me if i would do five and i'll tell you the honest truth in retrospect i probably should have but i was scared of two things one lightning generally does strike twice and i and i thought that the ending of halloween four uh was so special and so i don't know timeless just the way that you know that jamie became mike you know the whole thing was eerie and donald pleasant screaming at the bottom of the stairs it was just like kind of a, a moment that you know you can't recreate that and i also didn't want to get I was i was very young still and i didn't want to get typecast as a particular director he's the halloween guy because once you get known for one thing it's really hard now not being a fan i can say this now and it's long enough i'm not a fan of five and i wish alan and i had taken that story through and and done five in the same style as four with ellie and and danielle but you know i it was a little bit of a young man's ego to tell you the truth i just didn't want to get stuck now did you guys have any idea where you would go for a potential fifth movie well yeah i mean we had to figure i mean we knew that michael had gone down into this it wasn't a sewer but it was a it was going to be a a you know bleed out to a river of some kind so that was going to be the same that he was going to survive and then ellie and danielle were going to have to figure out each other as sisters and what her curse was but we didn't really flesh it all the way out because it didn't really happen dwight i have to ask you about the saga that happened between you and mr clint eastwood <laughs> where, where are you yeah that's good research what happened was that i had made this movie murdered 1600 and i kept saying but what about absolute power i said you know he, he eastwood's making a white house thriller what are we going to do and they and it was the same studio by the way which was insane. And I said, I said, you're competing with yourself. I mean, you're going to have two White House movies. His, he's Clint Eastwood. I got Wesley Snipes. So I'm the poor cousin. And they said, listen, do not worry about it. This movie's going to come out in January. Clint's going to come out in April. He's got the Clint Eastwood slot, they call it, which was April. You're going to, you know, January is the dumping ground, right? So that's where you just dump the, the mid-level movies. So I thought, okay, well, it's the dumping ground, but at least I'm going to get the jump on absolute power. And the reason I believe they were being true is because they gave us all this money to pay for extra editors, extra sound mixers, extra time with the composers, because we had to rush through post. And we had that movie ready to go. 
So there was a screening, a test screening um, in Santa Monica. And I was sitting right next to Bob Daly, who was the head of the studio. And, you know, Arnold Copelson, who was, as you probably know, a very serious producer, platoon in The Fugitive and all those big movies. And so we played the movie to a test audience and, you know, polite, maybe polite plus applause at the end. And uh, everybody went and, and disappeared because no one wants to say what they think until they see what's called the cards. I don't want to bore you guys, but the cards, you know, is like all the written responses of the audience. So the next day, I go into the studio and they say, look, the cards were great. You scored, a, I don't know, it was like an 88 in the top two boxes. And it was, it was so the movie played very well is the short answer. And somebody from Malpaso was at that screening and went over and said, hey, you know, they screened a little Wesley Snipes White House story last night and it tested really good. And I think that's the first time, honest to God, I think the first time Clint Eastwood even knew about this movie. You know, because he lives in his own world. And Eastwood world. you know and and we were i think off his radar he said you know what are you talking about a a wesley snipes white house movie so he hears that this movie does and tests well and he did exactly what i would have done which he called the studio down to his offices and said guys this is not going to happen you know it's like i'm clint eastwood i've been at the studio for 30 years and murder 1600 is going to come out after absolute power so that's my beef with clint eastwood (laughs) he used his muscle which you know i would have done the same thing and made sure that he came out first because every review of murder 1600 said just like last month's absolute power and i knew it i knew it i used to write all my bad my own headlines for bad reviews i I used to write them in advance (laughs) like like rapid fire we wrote a review alan and i wrote a review called vapid fire We wrote our own bad review of the movie, but so that's that's what happened. He just he just didn't want to be beat. He's a competitive guy, and so that that test screening I think was our undoing because if he had never heard about it, we, we would have come out in January, and I think we would have done more business. What's hilarious to me about that whole story is when you're Clint Eastwood, you call the studio executives down to your office and tell them what you're going to do. He doesn't go up the stairs. <laughs> I go up the stairs with my hat in my hand. He has everybody come downstairs to him. Oh, come on. (laughs) That's like, uh, what do they call that? That's like movie legend time. Exactly. Dwight, you've done a lot of work in television as well. So what would you say are the primary differences between directing for film and directing a television show? It's huge. And no one talks about it, but I'll talk about it. <laughs> you got to come in and you got to fit in really fast because the first thing is you, you're, you're stepping into a machine that's already up and running. So the principles are already cast, right? So your, your primary function as a director is, is script and cast. Well, that's not happening because the script is generally written already. The key cast is already set. I mean, you have to cast all the supporting players, but so that's done. The DP is already in place. Most of the stages and sets are built. So you have to come in and inherit all this and you got seven or eight days to deliver them the show that fits in with what they're doing. So I always say to people, look, it's like taking a professional skill like a lawyer or a plumber or something and you're applying what you do to somebody else's house it's not your house 
so you you go in and you try and understand the show that you're making and give them an hour of the show they're making not an hour of what you wish the show was or what you and and here's the problem is because i i kind of I can't help myself half the time, and I'm trying to rewrite and recast and change things around. So I burned a few bridges over the years because I get, because I can't help it. They really don't want that. They just want you to do their show. And uh, now there are exceptions to this, which are when you're working with one of the I'll call them the three kind of TV geniuses. That, like David Kelly, for example, I did the practice for a number of years, or Chris Carter, or, you know, or with Mm -hmm. Millennium and the X-Files, or John Wells, you know, if you're working with people at that level, then you just shut up and be grateful, because you're going to get a great script, you're working with guys that are so smart, and so talented, there's no point in arguing with them, because they're operating on that level, and you just say, hey, how can I help? really but they're, they're, they're com- and don't forget in the feature you're there for prep you're there for casting you develop the script you pick every location you oversee every stage and then you're there all the way through editing through music through sound mixing post-production titles answer print color timing I mean, the director is the entire movie goes through your taste, your point of view. Every single decision goes through you. And the minute you are done with an episode of television, you're gone. I mean, you have four days to do a cut of it, but then it's turned over to the network and turned over to the showrunner and and then they finish it. So it's almost a completely different job in some ways. At this point in your career, do you have a preference? Going back, I'm doing movies again because it's, um, look, it's the same old problem. The money in TV is crazy because when I started, not only would you get paid well for an an episode, but like on the practice, you'd get paid. And then in the summer, they'd run the whole thing again, all 24 episodes. It was called summer reruns. I don't know if you're old enough to remember this, but they would run the whole thing. And so you're getting paid basically twice. And then they would sell the whole thing overseas and you get paid again. And then they sell it to syndication and you get paid again. And now they're selling them to streaming services. So the life of an episode in terms of residual income can be really substantial, you know, and, and so it's, you know, when I was trying to raise a family. And the other thing is I was in town more with TV, although it started to become the more I did it, the more I, I traveling I did. At first it was in L.A. and then everybody caught on. And then it was, you know, it's Rhode Island, it's Texas, it's well, Atlanta now, as you guys know, Wilmington, Chicago, Albuquerque, you know, not to mention Vancouver, all that. Yeah, Vancouver is the one you always hear. Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto. I've been to Toronto a million times, you know, because it's, there's tax reasons. There's It's just money. You mentioned Chris Carter, Dwight, and you had extensive work on Millennium and you worked some on X-Files, two classic shows of the 90s. When you look back on those times, what do what sticks out to you? I'm more versed in Millennium because I did more episodes of that. But Chris, he was like a sphinx, you know, he's just, he's very quiet and still. And he is, you know, he's, everybody calls him the surfer. He's got this kind of gray hair. He's got this kind of Zen surfer vibe to him. And, but he, you know, he doesn't interfere. He doesn't micromanage, but he just kind of lets you know what he is hoping for in a given episode. He's, he's, and if you listen to him, you have to read between the lines a little bit because he does. I mean, Chris, 
Carter lives in Chris Carter world, you know, meaning in his head, <laughs> all, these, all these guys, the talented ones, right? In a way, they live in their own brain. And sometimes you have to think, I need to get in, I need to get into his head to see what he's seeing. Right. I thought he was a lovely guy, a bit of a sphinx. He's not a guy you would go out and have a drink with and tell jokes. You know, you don't feel any, he's not, you know, he's not an after work buddy kind of guy but millennium was so fascinating because lance is just you know a very simple i call him a simple genius because he he doesn't do a lot but you can't take your eyes off him you know that face and Mm -hmm. his understanding of what a scene is plus he's playing frank black and the whole astral projection the way he's able to previs not previs but well first of all the ones i did primarily were 97 98 99 and in fact, the millennium was coming. So it was weird because we yeah. had the, the millennium group and no one really knew what was going to happen. And there was a big Y2K thing when planes were going to fall out of the sky and that whole thing. Now, Lance does strike me as the kind of guy you'd like to have a beer with after work. Yeah, he's just the best. He's <laughs> just the best. And, you know, he's grateful for his career and He's a guy, and he, he talks about this, so it's not out of school, but he, he, wouldn't, he didn't read till he was practically in his late teens. He, was, he came up very rough, and uh, he joined the service. I think he got into the Navy, and they taught him how to read it. When he just started off as, as an actor, he'd have to get people to read the lines into a tape recorder for him so he could memorize them. Because he just didn't read, and even on Millennium, he, you know, he, he still he struggled a little bit with that. But of course, he had gotten much better. But think about that: about trying to be an actor and then having a hard time just reading. That's, that's incredible. That's got to be terrifying, really. But but you know that face and that presence, and he has this innate mm. intelligence that um, the camera. I'm convi- convinced that the camera sees everything. It's like it's the truth. Mm. And bad actors, you can't cheat for very long. And stupid actors, you can't cheat because you'll get found out. And because the camera will find you out. But the the smart ones, and it doesn't have to be book smart or MIT smart. Just like that native intelligence, the camera will see that every time. Before we move out of the the television world and back into your films, are there any projects that ever got off the ground or got started at least uh, that were your own original television projects? Well, Alan and I, the Halloween 4 writer, we tried over and over again. We had a, a thing called Division 44. We had Shark Island. And we developed a lot of things. We got so close so many times. You know, we had one set up with Fox. We had one set up with ABC. But in the end, we never got one made, and it's, it's disappointing, but uh, we tried. But all my television work has been work for hire. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorites, the ones that spoke to me, were The Practice, Millennium, Prison Break, Bones, which I did for a million episodes of that. Oddly enough, a little movie I made with Maggie Q up in Toronto called, I mean, TV show called Nikita which was a really fun show. So those have been kind of the the highlights for me. And Sleepy Hollow, oddly enough. I really like Sleepy Hollow. I love that actor. His name is Tom Meissen. Tom Meissen. I love Tom Meissen. That's why I love that show. Oh, my God, was he good. He's he great. so good. And a very nice man. Theater-trained British actor. Can do anything. And uh, he, he sold, I mean, it was a preposterous concept and all that. But 
he sold it somehow. I don't know how he did it, but he did. His whole presence, the hair and the beard and the, the overcoat and the, the whole vibe of that show was really interesting. Was John Noble on any of the episodes you yeah, worked on? Yeah, I did a couple with him. Oh, he, man, he's, uh, he's another great one. Yeah, he's an Aussie, you know. I always remember that he was one of the, he'll, he'll hate me if I if I say this, but he was one of the last smokers. And I'd always see him sneaking a cigarette, and I'd go over and say, hey, 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 come on, help me out. <laughs> 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 I've, I've been trying to quit my whole life. I mean, I have now, but I was always, I was always quitting rather than, you know, have it. So I, I'd, uh, I'd see him over there, and I don't know. That, I always thought that was funny. You don't see it when I started out. Everybody smoked, and then nobody smokes now, which is better, I'm sure. But, but he was healthy. He was strong. He was. He didn't seem tired, or you know, he was fine. Dwight, I have to ask you this now. You also directed the Tekken movie. How involved are the video game studios when it comes to those projects, if at all? Well, that was a very, very dark, difficult chapter for me because it was Alan again, McElroy. We had a script that was really quite good, I felt. And uh, <clears throat> we, we finally got the financing to an independent producer and went down to Shreveport. There were budget problems all the way along the line. So we kept getting our days, kept get, cutting back, cutting back. And then we would adjust and keep shooting and the money would get thinner and thinner because it wasn't a studio. So the, you know, there are all kinds of financial problems. And then the movie uh, was completely recut in the cutting room after the director's cut. And I um, didn't approve of what, what had happened. So, you know, I don't want to get too deep into it, but it did involve the DGA and a lot of negotiations. So I, I don't know whether I can say that I disown it because there are good things in it, but it really, the, the movie that came out, we shot an R-rated movie, and then they had a distributor who was going to take it out theatrically. And then that distributor decided they wanted a PG-13 movie. So all the kind of R-rated content was cut out. And then they then that company went bankrupt, so it was sold to Anchor Bay. I don't know if you've heard of Anchor Bay, but it's a DVD company. Yeah. And so then they sent it to the ratings board to get the Blu-ray rated. And it came back as an R anyway, but it was a but it was a PG cut so they released a pg-13 movie but it had an r rating on it so i think a lot of the fans were like well wait a minute you know why does this feel so soft when it says r do you know what i mean and, and so that was a problem and there was also anyway it became one of those kind of nightmares for a director because the movie that's in the that's out there now isn't doesn't reflect what Alan and I were really trying to do. There's moments of glimmer in it. I thought John Fu was quite good, and I don't know if you've seen it, but John Fu was the lead, you know, Jin Kazama guy. I'm glad you took the time to go into detail there because that's the stuff that gets lost in the translation, especially for fans. We never get to hear about all the edits and all the budget problems. So maybe take it a little easy on the directors, huh? Well, I'm happy to wear my, my part. I did make one mistake, and that is that Tekken, you know, I saw it as, a, you know, an intellectual property that we were going to adapt. But the thing of it is, it's a very Japanese IP intellectual property. And the best actor for the part that I was able to screen test, who was a martial artist, who looked like Jin Kazama, 
who moved right, who, the guy that I was most happy with was Zhang Fu. The problem is, and he's a great athlete, he's, he's a solid actor, he looks perfect, but John is Chinese. And the Tekken universe was not having it. And this, this really kind of is my fault, honestly, because there is a cultural unawareness. Because here in this country, English, English actors play, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis is Lincoln. And I mean, not even Martin Luther King is American. Like every single historical figure is played by a British actor or an Australian, right? We always have Aussies playing Americans uh, and Brits. And I don't know, no one makes a, I mean, we don't really care. It's like no one has a big fuss about it. Like if Russell Crowe plays in The Insider and he plays this archetypal American character, no one cares. It's Russell Crowe, right? But for some reason, John Fu playing Jin Kazama, there's such tension between China and Japan that this was not received well. It was an unhappy circumstance. And in retrospect, if someone had sat me down and said, Dwight, you cannot cast a Chinese actor in this Japanese part, I, pro- I think I would have listened, but I, sh- I should have been culturally sensitive enough to know that. So I'll own that. The rest of it, I can't own. <laughs> well said. However, I'm looking at your list here, and apparently that was not your fresh brush with video games. Tell me about Ground Zero Texas. Well, that was a wild success. Nobody knows it, but that was a a Sega video game, point-and-shoot game, and no one had really done it. We were with a small company out of Silicon Valley, and, (coughs) excuse me, successful point... I mean, it's very primitive. It's almost like Pong by today's standards, but (laughs) it's very primitive. But the basic fundamentals of that game, you know, there's an alien invasion in a small Texas town, and... You don't know if you're shooting an alien or a person, and sometimes you make a mistake and shoot the alien, not the person, and there's there's a bomb, there's a nuclear bomb. All the, I mean, you could put any of the modern, you know, landmark video games into that creative mold, getting through levels and, and chasing, I, I mean, it was... I think it was ahead of its time, um, and I think a lot of people who later designed video games studied that, so I think it it was an important little cultural artifact. It looks like Alan McElroy was also working with you on that one. Yeah, it was it was an impossible math test because you had to shoot all the alternatives, right? You had to shoot, okay, so the gunslinger in this version, he's a gunslinger. In the next version, he's an alien. In the next version, he's a dead gunslinger. In the next version, he's an alien that blows up. And the next, you know, so you have to shoot these five versions so that the computer geniuses up in Silicon Valley could program the computer to have. So if you make the wrong decision, you know, the alien blows up or the, or you shoot the cowboy dead and then you lose points. What, you know how that goes. Yeah. So it's like filming every branch of every possibility of a film. Yeah. It's like, it's a nightmare. And (laughs) the script was literally looked like some kind of weird math chart, you know, with these, you know, the, they have those charts for like the final four in basketball, (laughs) all the teams. And there's there's this possibility and it gets closer and closer. It's like it shows your own adventure script. 
It was. And then you have to, but then you have to shoot it and you have to keep track of all that. But uh, it was, it was a simultaneously interesting and challenging project, but it got done and they sold it. Sega, nothing really, Sega didn't really blow up, but it was really interesting. I'd like to do, frankly, I would do the movie version of that right now. Oh, wow. That would be an insane movie. <laughs> just, just the plot of it, without all the branching alternate futures. So, Dwight, out of all the projects you've worked on throughout your career, which one would you say is the most challenging? Oh, that's a that's a really good question. Yikes. I guess it, I'd have to say Mark for Death, because he, Stephen, although he was pretty good with me, generally, he's a big personality, as I'm sure you guys probably have heard. I had everything riding on that movie because it was my first studio movie steven all the new i mean all the agents knew steven was coming up because hard to kill uh, had come out and done some business so there's huge expectations on this movie and i think the political pressure from fox from the studio also fox was in trouble uh, Joe Roth and Roger Birnbaum had taken over a flagging studio. They saved themselves with two movies. Home Alone was one, and Mark for Death was the other. Um, so I think not only was the production very difficult, and Stephen, I, I don't have anything negative to say about Stephen, just that you have to manage him. He's a, he's a big personality, and you, you just have to make it work for what you're doing. You know, the, the subject we have... You know, the J- Jamaican posse, it was, uh, there's a lot of tension there. So I would say that that gave me the most anxiety, I guess I would say. Although the whales and Free Willy too, oh my God. Because now you got whales and kids and water and it's just like, how can this go right? You know, all those things are just going wrong all the time. And Seagal and whales, <laughs> equally frustrating. <laughs> yeah. pick, pick one. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> so to date, what would you say is the best filmmaking advice that you've received? I would say take care of the script and the casting. You'll know how to direct it. You'll know how to get the cuts. You'll know how to get the coverage. You'll figure out all that stuff. Watch the pace. This is what I say to people who film students who ask me. Watch your pace. Don't fall in love with anything. Don't be boring. Don't be slow. Move it along. But most important, fix the script and the casting. Because if you have the script and the casting, you're going to make a good movie. You can't fuck it up. But all your directing knowledge and all your brilliance will not fix either a bad script or a bad piece of casting. You can't direct your way out of a bad uh, out of a bad piece of casting. You cannot do it. And it's just a fool's errand because they, you know, you can make them 10% better. But so I, I just keep saying people come to me and I say, what about the Luma crane or the jib arm or the steady cam or the snorkel lens or the something mount? And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> None of that matters. You'll, it'll be there. It's on the truck. You know, <laughs> use it. Use it, don't use it, whatever you think. But man, if you go into it, if you go into a, a movie with your script and your cast, like I did a little indie called Last Rampage and a very, very small movie. But I had Robert Patrick and Heather Graham and Alec McNichol and John Hurd and Bruce Davison. Wow. I mean, you cannot go wrong with these people because 
they're just so good. And the script was buttoned down. So that that movie came, I mean, it's not widely seen movie. It was a small little movie, but but it, it you know, you kind of couldn't go wrong. It was just so, I mean, those actors are so good. Well, since you just said that, I'm not going to ask you to name names, but would you say there's a project of yours that you feel could have benefited from better casting? Oh, goodness. I'll tell you, I, I, it's tough to do it without naming names. <laughs> hey, if, you, if you want to, you can name them. I'm just yeah. not going to ask you. Uh, that's so treacherous. Yes, there are several, but I can't. I just can't. Hey, I understand. <laughs> we'll, we'll just say that you would have cast better whales. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, there are some that were miscast, but I've been lucky, too. I mean, I've been lucky with some casting. Yeah, no, I can't go there. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> is there, is there anybody that you would really like to work with again who you haven't had a chance to yet? Oh, that's a that's a really good question. I would work with Robert Patrick anytime, anywhere, doing anything. <laughs> he's just, you know, not only is he a great guy, but he's also just such a good actor. And let's see, who, who else? Gosh, there's Tom Meissen. I, I would do anything to work with him again. He was just so good. Diane Lane, what a sweetheart she is. And the, yeah, there's a lot of those actors who have left us such a good feel. Alan Alda, I mean... I couldn't get anything done with Alan Alda because we just kept cracking each other up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's so funny. And you're trying to do this serious political thriller and he's the bad and he's the bad guy. So he's got to be somewhat menacing and he just couldn't help himself. And then he'd get me laughing. And then it's like, then we couldn't shoot because I mean, he was, he was so much fun. I don't know whether it was good for the studio. I told him not to print any of those dailies because it was like, it's embarrassing, but there's been a lot. Of, I've worked with a lot of great actors and I had a really good relationship with David Boreanaz, who, you know, now from SEAL team, but he was an angel and, you know, when Buffy and Bones and he's been on TV for like 20 years. You guys know David, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I had a really good creative relationship with him. He's also very funny, by the way. You wouldn't know it because now he's doing this hard ass SEAL team. <laughs> You know, he's all, he's, I make fun of him now because I know him socially and I'm like, quit pretending you're such a badass. And <laughs> so, Dwight, are you a horror fan in general? Have you seen any good horror movies during the lockdown? I, I definitely am. I've, unfortunately, I've seen some bad ones. Um, I saw one that was, I'll, I'll call this one out. There's one called The Unholy. Do you guys know what that is? I'm not familiar. You don't even know that one. Mm. Look it up right now. I'm sorry. It just came out, and I'm like, oh, my God. And then there was another one that I saw in the theater, and who was in that? There's been some. I've been really seeing some bad. I am looking forward to Quiet Place 2. I, I was a fan of Quiet Place 1 for sure. But did you see it as the Unholy? Yeah, Columbia? yeah, Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Uh, he's, a, he's a fine actor, but this movie was just. Produced oh. by Sam Raimi. Yeah, well, he needs to, like... <laughs> Should have directed it, right? <laughs> yeah, but he needs to kind of write a note and say, oh, oops, sorry. Uh, I'm going to watch this one as soon as possible. I love a bad horror movie. Well, you're going to get you're gonna get it. <laughs> <laughs> it was just... I don't know. I wish I could think of this other one. This It's about this couple, and they're divorcing, and then there's a... 
There's something living up in the attic. It came out just recently. I wish I could give you one of the actors so that you had a, a tag, but I, I can't remember. Anyway, get on the Amazon queue and you start watching old movies. Because yeah. a lot of the new stuff just doesn't. I mean, some of it's good, but I liked, I was the only one in America. It's not a horror movie, but I liked this Angelique Jolie movie that came out, but it just completely bombed. Those Who Wish You Dead. And it oh, just, I've been seeing trailers for that. And, and it came out, well, it came and went. It just it completely bombed. But it was a pretty good, you know, just Hollywood thriller, kind of old school. But I see the action movies. I see some of the the horror movies. I saw Hereditary. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Justin and I Justin and I disagree on slow burn horror. I, I would watch a horror movie that drug on for four or six hours. But uh, Justin wants it well, short and sweet. You must have loved, is it pronounced Midsummer or Midsummer? Midsummer, yeah. yeah. yeah talking That's about another oh, Ari Aster movie. Okay. Yeah, I, I love that oh, movie. Very, huh? Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, you would. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't have the patience for it. I just... Dwight, come on, man. I wish I could shake your hand right now. <laughs> <don't have> <laughs> but, look, that guy, that heredity, that's the heredity guy, right? Yeah, it's Ari Aster. Yeah, his his mind's a little twisted, I have to say. <laughs> I, guess that's the point. I guess that's the point. But I think it was in heredity, the, like a girl sticks her head out the window and it gets decapitated, right? That's all, right. I, that's all I really remember. Yeah. That's about it. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> There's some like there's some like demon orgy in an attic at the end. It's like some wild demon exorcist orgy at the attic. And I'm like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> oh, so was, you're killing me. I was not. I was not really a fan, but I'm glad I mean, it's so subjective, isn't it? Like, oh, yeah. yeah, for sure. Opinions. We all have them. <laughs> now you guys not have not said what well, then I gotta we gotta wind it down, but you guys have not given me one question about Phantom of the Opera. Come on. I've okay. seen it. It's it's not my favorite Robert England film. I'll be okay, honest with that, you. That discreet. Okay. <laughs> but, but but go see it again. There's so much hidden value to that. Justin, go get that DVD. Go watch that movie. Because that is what <clears throat> I call a noble failure. It is like so close to being a really culty classic movie. I'll, I'll agree with that sentiment. It, it, it misses in a couple of ways, but man, I thought we were close. Robert's terrific in it. I mean, you know, we had Jill Sholin from The Stepfather. We had Robert. We did have, you know, there were some script issues, but I defend that movie. I will defend that movie. And it does have fans, by the way. It's, it's got some supporters. But, um, of course, it has been almost 30 years. But give that a second chance. Robert England's Phantom of the Opera. I will do that, uh, Absolutely will do and, that. And there's a really good, really good Blu-ray if it, it's worth getting... It was just reissued uh, within the last five years. And I'm not, was it, I think Scream Factory, I think. Yeah, it probably was. I may own that, actually. I, I, I tend to buy a lot of their re-releases. Yeah, but, it, they, you know, it's beautifully rendered. They, I don't know if they remixed the sound, but they, you know, they enhanced the sound. It's a beautiful print. And with a distance a little time, I think you'll feel it holds up. I think, I think it, a lot of people, in fact... When I go 
you know, or people find out I'm a filmmaker or if I'm at a convention or something, that's the film everybody asks me about. It's very weird. And I'll tell you what the cult is. It's goth girls between 18 and 35. I don't know why, but they're crazy about this movie. Like Beatles fanboy crazy. But that, who knew, but that was the target. You know, a little green punk hair and little gothy like that's funny well dwight it's been a pleasure talking to you my friend so before we cut you loose do you have anything on the horizon you can tell us about okay so there's one i'm getting pretty close on called fast walkers which is my first foray into sci-fi it is an alien thriller and um, it takes into account some of the politics on the U.S.-Mexico border. And it's a little bit of a, a allegory about immigration, but it does have to do with you know, migrants, truly illegal aliens. <laughs> and it, it's, a, it's a pretty clever script called Fast Walkers. Uh, we're casting that now. Whether we can you know, get all the way to a green light, I don't know, but I hope so, because I think it's a good, you know, it's got a little quiet place in it, but it's also got a little Sicario and it's kind of a mashup. It's kind of a mashup almost. That sounds fascinating. Who's who's the the uh, screenwriter on that? Well, <laughs> it's two guys. So I don't know why it's funny, but um, there's the first writer is a guy named Ben Olson, who's the most prolific unproduced writer ever because he writes scripts, he gets development deals, he finishes scripts, and I've known him for years. He lives in Green Bay, I think. And he just doesn't get produced. I mean, he's been to the point where they've had, they've been prepping and had offices. He had one going in Australia and then COVID shut it down. This guy's got bad luck. But his, his name is Ben Olson. And I think I, this could be the first one that gets produced of his. And he's written quite a few. So uh, I have another little horror thriller called Natty Knox, which is K-N-O-C-K-S, Natty Knox which is a real 80s throwback. I don't know how else to say Ooh, it. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it's got, some, it's got some Halloween 1 in it. It's got a little whiff of Disturbia in it, but it's very much a Haddonfield small-town thing. It's a babysitter movie. Um, I think the killer is pretty good. He's, his mother was a B-movie actress from the 60s who became a prostitute, and... So he has become obsessed with these horror movies that she did in the 60s and the twist, you know, because she kept getting killed over and over again. Yeah. There were all these movies, you know, like I Was a Teenage Werewolf and Blood Beach and, and you know, the real B-movie Teenage Werewolf kind of stuff. And she was like this buxom star and then she lost her looks and moved back to Fresno and became a prostitute. And he's like at, at six years old, he's under the bed while she's servicing her clients and watching this makeup where she has her stage makeup. So he's a wonderfully twisted, as you can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> it's still on my desk. I haven't made it yet, but I'm going to. It's called Natty Knock because um, the, the, she knocks nine times every time 
she comes, you know, to do damage. There's nine. It, that, that's the conceit. She knocks nine times. It's not like it's never been seen before, but it's kind of a good v- version of what we've all liked before. That's what we love. I mean, I, I, I say this all the time, especially about slasher films. Is you know, it's it's sort of like a a thing that you practice. You know, you you make your own slasher, and it's it's a derivation of a formula that's been done. But if you do it well, it doesn't matter. Right, that's right. You just have to do it well. And, you know, it's like, there's been a lot of pop songs, you know, but you, if, exactly. you write, if you write a good pop song, it's still good. Exactly. I mean, I, I'll, I'll praise stuff like Hereditary, but you give me a stack of slasher movies and I'm incredibly happy. Like, <laughs> You're all good. <laughs> that's funny. Well, come on, give Phantom one more chance. I, I, I am absolutely going to do, do that. that. All right. Well, Dwight, it's been a pleasure talking to you, my friend. And, all right. Thanks for your interest. Yeah, well, listen, if I get something going, I'll help you. have you guys help me promote it. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely, my friend. You have a good night. We'll be in touch. See you guys. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day all with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.